Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now for an extended conversation on emerging markets, Lupin Rahman Pimko, head of Emerging Market Sovereign Credit, and so with us, Catherine Mann, City Global Chief Economist. So thank you both for coming on. Lupin, when you look at emerging markets overall, lower for longer, from central banks, not only from the Fed, but around the world, is this a buying opportunity for emerging market credit? I think it's a very constructive opportunity for, for emerging markets right now. The Fed being on pause, um, being a lot more patient, China, U.S. trade deals, more or less, um, Seeing some resolution or at least not tipping over into a left tail type of risk is a very positive environment for, for emerging markets. And within that, valuations are very cheap. So emerging market credit look very attractive right now. Catherine? Um, in general, um, I would agree with your statement. But on the other hand, I think that, that uh, the emerging market opportunities are very heterogeneous. Uh, some emerging markets are not going to win. Uh, at least in terms of the China deal uh, that looks like it's on the table, there's not going to be, so, uh, not everybody's going to win out of that. Absolutely. And so um, I think it bears uh, a lot of consideration um, uh, which emerging markets are more likely to be winners than others. This so is, a lot of heterogeneity. This is really important. Jim O'Neill writing in Project Syndicate on this as well, yeah. the N11 countries and that. Can I ask you two grizzled pros, how do you pick the losers? I don't want to figure out who the winners are. How do I avoid the losers, Lupin? Yes. How do you avoid the losers in EM? In, in EM, the losers are going to be those countries which have very large dollar financing needs with policy frameworks that are very mm -hmm. fragile. And the ones that we've been talking about for several years and that are coming, coming to bear right now, Turkey, um, huge gross financing needs, not a very strong policy framework that's clear, transparent to investors, very vulnerable. Well, the delicacies of this, Dr. Mann, how does Turkey clear its market? I mean, on a Hayekian basis, you got to go in socially, politically, economically, and clear the market out of the last number of Erdogan years. How do they constructively do that? There are a lot of challenges in Turkey. The, 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 the finance is set up in Turkish lira and in U.S. dollar. Which mm -hmm. do you approach first? I think there are just a lot of challenges in Turkey. Okay. Um, actually, I, I want to talk a little bit about Sudan, so w without talking specifically about it, but it's very clear that if you're an autocratic leader, you need to learn some lessons from the toppling of the Sudanese president, mm -hmm. which is basically avoid a currency crisis, mm -hmm. yes. right? Is that kind of, you know, a, um, I don't know if it's a warning shot for, for Mr. Maduro? Look, I think, I think it's very hard to extrapolate because the, the situations are quite, quite different. But I think in, in general, um, what you need to do when you're, when you're facing a, a population that's, that's facing the kind of challenges that Venezuela is, is approaching itself with is really to take a pragmatic approach. In Venezuela's case, oil production is plummeting. It's well below one million um, barrels per day, which even a year ago was unthinkable. As a government, they really have to figure out a way to try and at least stabilize that as a means to gain dollars. Catherine? When you look at, I mean, if you're, if you look at emerging markets, right, there right. are hot spots. And yeah. if you look at what happened in 2018, mm -hmm. it's like a lot of idiosyncratic mm -hmm. stories. Right. But the overarching theme is one of Fed or is it something else? If you have trade wars, how mm -hmm. are these countries, these emerging markets actually affected? Mm -hmm. And do the benefits from the Fed actually outweigh what we're seeing with, with trade wars? 
I, I think you've got different countries that for, for, for whom the, the Fed pause uh, benefits them. But I think it's very clear that the trade war is clearly going to differentiate some countries from the others. Um, to the extent that uh, China purchases things uh, from the U.S. rather than purchasing them from other emerging markets, to the extent that the uh, deal uh, unravels supply chains. It's very negative. We can identify which emerging markets are more likely to be affected. Um, you know, the, the, the top losers are Taiwan, Singapore, and Korea. The, the actual the top winners end up being uh, Mexico and Canada. It's not an emerging market, but it ends up being a winner. So uh, we also have to think about trade diversion. Uh, Vietnam, for example, is a loser on trade uh, supply chains, but it's a winner on trade diversion. So. I think that there are, I, I agree with many of Catherine's points. I think there are medium and long-term and near-term effects. In the near-term, both are positive, both the Fed and, and China, um, in terms of the, the some reconciliation with the, with, with the trade war side. But in the longer term, I think... Um, trade wars or some trade tensions between the U.S. and China are, are likely to be there for some time, not only because these issues are right. deep and complex, but also because there are political motivations on both sides. And in the longer term, some emerging markets are going to benefit and others less so. Right. Um, our job is to f try and figure out which right. ones are going to well. benefit disproportionately. We are seeing some anecdotal evidence that FDI is coming back to Mexico, even mm -hmm. with the, the new government mm -hmm. being a lot more left. D Dr. Mann, have you given up on a multilateral world? I mean, it's a really important question. We go through Uruguay and the GATT talks and WT and all that. Has Catherine Mann given up on multilateralism? I have not given up on multilateralism as a principle, um, but I think that if we, it's very clear that multilateralism and even bilateral deals have really fallen off. Mm. Um, and as a result, global integration has retreated. Uh, it's not just uh, that it's slowed down. In fact, if we look back uh, 10 years or so, even pre-financial crisis, uh, the global financial crisis, um, uh, global integration had already started to slow down. And so, you know, this is the absence of not just multilateral, but the absence of any any forward momentum on trade deals. Uh, whether or not the, uh, the, uh, the TPP without the U.S. and maybe the U.S. kind of joining ex post uh, might represent a, a positive dimension. I mean, it, it could be the case that that would have the foundation for a more superior strategy. Uh, the counterweight for that, of course, is, is U.S.-China bilateral shopping list. Uh, Lupin, if you look at trade between you know, the Southeast Asian economies, is that increasing and and does that mean that actually that region as long as china either stays put or you know doesn't fall off a cliff does it mean that you see opportunities there absolutely and i think that that's one of the key things that we're seeing um over the last say 10 years that intra em trade has increased and it's not mm -hmm. just a function of what's happening with the global um production mm -hmm. platform with with china and i do expect that to continue as long as we don't get a bear landing in, well, in chinese growth lupin ramen with us with pimco and we're thrilled that Catherine Mann of Citigroup is with us as well, the former head of OECD. Within the capitalism of the moment, Uber and the finance and all that, there is still economics being committed. With us, Adam Posen of the Peterson uh, Institute, who was just wonderful on a holistic deal. Adam, guess what? That doesn't matter. What matters is John Farrow is hours away from his property. The real yield 
which means we need to take it by intact. What does it mean to Adam Posen that the view out five years and then five years forward from there in Europe inflation, in Europe interest rates is plunging? Not so much the low interest rates seen, but the vector towards low interest rates is stunning in Europe. Isn't it, Adam? It is probably the most scary thing any of us have seen, Tom. Uh, I don't think we've ever seen anything quite this scary. I don't mean to exaggerate, but this is about the scariest development in bond markets because it's Japanification in an area that should have been able to avoid it. The rate of change, and in fact, it was interesting, folks, in the bank hearing the other day to hear the leader of Goldman Sachs talking about the second and third derivative. And there's a pun there in that the third derivative is sort of a cosmic pixie dust of everything else that's going on. In the three-dimensional space, Adam, what's the why of this rate of change towards low interest rates? A combination of the lack of investment ability and the lack of government ability. We're just fundamentally losing faith in the future in Europe, which is terrifying. We're okay to a nominal GDP of 2% or so. We got limited population growth. Everybody writes about Italy, et cetera. But is it innovation? Is it is it a bank system, as John and I have covered so much, that's just completely rigid and is unable to clear? Is JP Morgan and others cleared in America? You're right that the banking system is a big part of the problem, but it's not the main driver. The main driver here isn't even innovation, Tom. It's the inability to get innovation implemented in the economy, the inability to make the changes that allow for productivity growth. How do they do that? I mean, I know the French, I've been to, full disclosure, folks, the French government calls me up and would you come have a beverage of your choice? (coughs) Excuse me, and talk about innovation around Paris out by CDG and the rest. How do you affect, how do you commit Silicon Valley to a European society? Again, it's not about the original innovation, Tom. I'm sorry. It's Silicon Valley's a godsend, but that's only one place. What you can emulate is the the multi-year advantages of becoming more efficient, of allowing services, of consolidating the banking sector, of putting more labor market flexibility in in a good sense of doing the public investment, which is so lacking in Germany and elsewhere. It's not about the innovative companies. It's about the flexibility of the economy as a whole. And yet so far, Adam, they just haven't displayed the willingness to do these things to the degree that it needs to be done. I'm just wondering outside of Europe, externally, the external forces, whether a lot of the problems at the moment are being exported by China. To what degree is that true, Adam? I think that's much less true than it was 10 or 15 years ago, Interesting. John, because I, I think China is, of course, much bigger now, but it's also much more advanced, and its wages have come up a lot, and it's in balanced trade with the world, although not with the U.S., and it's not manipulating the currency, and it's trying to maintain a stable economy. So for all those reasons, it's not like in the early days of China entering the world system where they were manipulating the currency, playing with very low wage, wage production, in the end, I mean, there are still issues with China, but I don't think you can blame this on China. This is something technological or indigenous to the rich countries. Adam, whilst we're on the subject, we would love your insight on what is happening with China. Market participants every morning grappling as to whether we're seeing any kind of signs of a bottoming out taking place this morning. Export data looked okay. Import data looked a little soft. Then we had credit growth absolutely surging. Can you get a clear read on that economy at the moment? Clear read would be too much, but I think we have a decent sense. As my colleague Nick Lardy has argued, and I agree, the floor under Chinese growth is sinking slowly, 
but is not as low as people think it is. There's more support there. And they're actually doing the stimulus reasonably effectively this time. Oh, they're doing the stimulus effectively this time. But is the underlying debt visible? I mean, we had Nick Lardy in with us right. recently. Thank you so much for that, Adam, as his agent. But, but, but is, there, is there a visibility to their non-visible government-run banking? Not so much the banking. It, the visibility is to their very visible, totally useless government-run SOEs in backward sectors. They're still they're like they used money. to be. Yeah, that part of the economy, which she is making the, that part yeah. of the economy grow. That's the visible part dragging it down. Okay, not enough time today. Adam Posen, thank you so much. And thank as you. always, for all of us at Team Surveillance, thank you so much, Adam, for Thanks, your work, Adam. particularly in the, uh, John Farrow, in the freezing cold of Italy, Adam Posen braved the winds well, and walked trooper. to our set. He, he, it was, it was jaw-dropping. He's not there a diva a, like you, Tom. Let's bring in Chris Whelan, shall we? Chair of Whelan Global Advisors. He joins us now to run through the bank earnings. Chris, the challenge for Wall Street in 2019, what is it? Uh, rising funding costs. After the crisis, the Fed pushed down funding and earnings fell more slowly. So it increased uh, net interest margin. Now we're doing the opposite. Funding costs for JP were up 70% year over year. Interest earnings were up about 24%. And this is typical throughout the industry. Uh, it's been about a four to one ratio for the last three years. And I've been telling my clients that NIM is going to flatten out after the first quarter of this year, and then it's going to go down slightly. And that's not going to be well received. Well, let's talk about the valuation, the price of the story at the moment. You know, the bulls would say a lot of that, Chris, is already in the price. These valuations are so attractive. Why is that a value trap? I don't think it's a value trap. At 1.3, 1.4 times book, JP Morgan's fairly valued given its performance. You know, Wells is still a better performer, dollar for dollar of uh, assets. And it used to be close to two times book. Uh, I've actually been speaking very constructively about Wells, but the problem is you're going to have to wait three, four yeah. years for them to get out of the penalty box unless the management picks up the pace a bit, right? It's a, it's a study in terms of not reacting uh, to regulators. Right. And it's, it's striking because Wells used to be the perfect big bank. They were the leader of the top four. Review, Chris Whalen, the geniosity of a few years after the crisis where Whalen said buy preferreds. You yes. get the big coupon. Is that still valid today or are you a common stock guy this morning? Oh, I love the preferreds, Tom. There's some high coupon perpetual preferreds out there that will never be called. They're part of the capital structure of these banks. Uh, I own U.S. Bank uh, Preferreds. Uh, I traded out of most of my real estate exposure at the end of last year. And the banks traded off in December, and I backed up the truck. Because, you know, for me, they are the best-performing large bank in the U.S. They're the smallest of the top five, but they're the most, by far and away, the most efficient of the money okay. center banks. Let's stop things right now and, and say to Chris Whalen, what's a coupon you pick up? on a U.S. bank preferred roughly? Five and a half. So you're picking up five and a half percent, two times or more of a U.S. Treasury, and then you wait. What do you give up on equity on the upside, given that the common stock lifts as well? Well, I, I own a little bit of the common, but these are low beta stocks, Tom. These are one, 1. 1.2 beta stocks. Yeah. You want yeah. excitement, you buy Bank of the Ozarks. 
<laughs> well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about has the beta of these wait, stocks changed? Wait, 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 wait. No, Chris, wait, wait, wait. John, do you know where the Ozarks are? Oh, come on, give me a break. <laughs> John, I don't they know where a they high are either. <laughs> and they stumbled. A lot of people are waiting for them to recover that two times book value multiple. Uh, but, you know, City, City is the bottom of the top four. They trade below book. Why? Subprime consumer lending. Uh, same as Capital One. They will always trade a little below book. Can we talk about the beta of these equities and yes. how much that's changed in the last 10 years? How much has that shifted? To what degree? It, it shifts in a, basically on an idiosyncratic basis, given what's going on with the particular name. Some of them are very boring, very stable. But then you had Bank America two years ago galloping long 40% uh, that got their beta up a lot. Now it's calmed down again. I just hear people tell me again and again and again on the credit side, buy the credit, don't buy the equity. Right. That's what I keep hearing, Chris, right. and I keep hearing it from you as well. And I'm just wondering well, why, these companies, is right. why I, these companies have changed so much. It's not that they've changed so much. It's that we're in a, per, a, a permanent or semi-permanent low-rate environment. Yeah. You know, three and a quarter, maybe the top for the 10-year note for years. So, you know, when you factor that into the equation, I think it, it makes some of these opportunities yeah. uh, look much better. Chris, you've authored this. You've done a spectacular one volume on the financial history of the nation, et cetera, et cetera. Just for our audience, what was different about seven guys standing up doing an oath to Maxine Waters this time around versus the soiree we saw a decade ago? Uh, not a great deal. It's mostly I politics. People, I agree. Not a great deal is the, no. is the they, main message. Look, Teddy Roosevelt used to rail against big banks, too. It's good politics. Um, the, you know, the hearings in the 20s and the 30s, the same way. Uh, it's, it's just part of the, I think, populist tendency in American politics to go after big things, whether it's a big aircraft manufacturer or a big yeah. bank. It's big, and we don't like it. Are the banks under-owned? No, they're very owned on the institutional side. I think individuals uh, fled the banks. I'm not sure that they're ready to come back. I think most individuals were happier to do the kind of trade I've been doing, which was to buy the preferred, which is basically a bond. So, Chris, essentially what you're saying is you're not bullish growth for these banks at all. I mean, I look at this quote from JP Morgan out this morning, net interest mm. income up 8%, predominantly driven by the impact of higher rates. And I've been talking about this the last couple of days. The truth is the yield curve has actually meant relatively little uh, for go. US banks this cycle. Uh, Fee-based right. fee revenue has been great. We've had zero interest deposits, which meant essentially it doesn't matter what the yield curve looks like. What ultimately matters is the trajectory for interest rates. Now, if interest rates aren't going to go up anymore, That's and it's, right. as you say, if Larry Kudlow's right and rates aren't going up anytime soon, maybe not in his lifetime. And funding costs are going to be going up structurally. So if it's not a volume story, where's the growth coming from? Because it hasn't been a volume story. No, it hasn't. And unfortunately, the flip side of the gift from the Fed yeah. after the crisis is that they've essentially capped returns. It's very hard for banks to raise spreads on loans right now because they're competing, especially big banks, with private equity funds and pension funds who all want the same big assets. If you go down a notch to BBT and Regions and SunTrust, right. they have much better pricing on their loan book. It's a point, point and a quarter in some cases. So that, to me, is the dilemma for the larger banks, is that they're yeah. hunting for big animals. Yeah. And to get yeah. them, they have to fight off the other lines. Chris, great to see you. All right, guys. Have Chris Whelan there, Chair of Whelan, Global Advisors on the latest bank earnings.
Now we speak to a different kind of Democrat, and I'm, I'm very guilty of this. Uh, Adrian Elrod with us, of course, to say Democratic st- strategist barely describes her contribution to Arkansas and Midwest, I'm going to say, and Southern Democratic Party uh, affairs. The names are, are really important, working with Mike Ross, Arkansas, Lampson of Texas, Klein of Florida, and on and on. Adrian, we're thrilled to have you with us to talk Thanks. about the progressive shift in the party. Have you grayed over this? Yeah, you know, I think it's a little overplayed. I mean, there are some vocal voices, obviously AOC, um, you know, some some individuals in the party who are a little bit more outspoken, who are getting more traction, and yeah. they speak about policies. But when you look at, you know, when you take away Twitter, when you take away social Amer- social media, and you look at what Americans really want, a lot of people, especially in the Democratic Party, are very moderate. They don't want to see all these extreme policies take place. They just want to be Donald Trump. Do you suggest that the leadership, and particularly the House leadership and Senator Schumer, can drag the party at some point back to a more Adrian Elrod moderation, or is this going to be a real challenge? <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think that's why having experienced leadership, both um, Senator Schumer as, as a minority leader and, of course, Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House, is so important right now because the two of them are really able to take their caucus holistically and move them back to a place that makes sense. But look, you know, Congress has the authority, of course, to legislate, and they are trying to get some of these kitchen table issues passed, like prescription, lowering prescription drug costs, addressing the high cost of health care, um, you know, dealing with the opioid addiction. You know, there are some of those major issues that Democrats actually voted on, um, other Democrats, to essentially win back the House in 2018. This is what the American people want. But on the flip side, you've got candidates running for the presidency who are really trying to appeal to that left wing of the party. And I think what you'll see, especially when that first debate starts at the end of June, I think you will see a real policy debate about the issues and the direction of our country and how to get there, while also seeing, you know, over the course of time, the party sort of start to shift back to such a to a more moderate place. Okay, I'm counting right now 17, perhaps 18 Democratic candidates. You talk about the first debate. You want to make an oh. announcement, Lisa? <laughs> I am officially not I announcing my 2020 run. No, but but here's here's my question. I mean, we're just looking at a circular firing squad, no? No, we're not at all. I mean, look, I can understand why a lot of people want to jump into this race because there is so much at stake. I mean, there was a lot at stake in 2016, but now that the American people have had over two years of Donald Trump, there's even more at stake in 2020. So you're seeing a lot of folks, you know, jump into the ring, throw their hat in. I think the real question becomes, you know, number one, who is still in the race after Labor Day? Because if somebody can't raise the money to stay in the race, and if somebody certainly can't raise the money in grassroots dollar donations in order to keep qualifying for the debate stage, then what's the point of staying in the race, right? Secondly, the question, next question becomes, who's in the race by the time the Iowa caucuses roll around in early February? So I think you're going to see a lot of people start to drop out. So what's your best guess? Who are going to be the front runners here? Well, I think we're already starting to see that emerge. Um, obviously, if Joe Biden runs, he's a front runner. Bernie Sanders right now is the de facto front runner. We're seeing in the polls of all the people who are running at this point who have announced he is the front runner. Um, Mayor Pete, he's had a breakthrough moment. The question is, can somebody like him sustain his his pace right now once the debate stage starts. I think somebody like Kamala at this point has shown that she's got the most staying power. Yeah. I think she's able to build the strongest coalition. 
Um, I think the map mm-hmm. favors her, her, of course, with California being on Super Tuesday right after, right after South Carolina. Um, so, you know, but look, I think we're going to see a couple other people emerge, too. I think if Terry McAuliffe gets in, he's going to have a really uh, strong appeal to that moderate wing of the party that the two of you were just talking about. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. Oh, I got 18 more questions, but we don't have time. Adrian Elrod, don't be a stranger with Elrod's strategies. She promises to come back when Lisa Bramowitz runs for president, whichever party that could be. Uh, as well, Adrian, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.